Lecture 15, Introduction to Working Memory. Now we're going to shift gears in the course. The first section of the course focused on conscious explicit learning. And then we turned to unconscious implicit learning of skills and habits. In the third section of the course, we're going to turn our attention to another aspect of learning and memory, namely working memory. Now, working memory is the cognitive system that allows you to temporarily store information for short periods of time to maintain that information over a delay, and to process that information in the service of whatever you're currently trying to do. And to motivate the topic, I'd like to give you a mental puzzle to try to solve in your head. Now, normally you would use paper and pencil, but for this example, I want you to try to solve the problem in your head without writing anything down. In fact, why don't you close your eyes to prevent you from using any external aids? Now, after I give you the problem, you can pause the lecture for a minute to work on it. Okay, ready? What is 836 plus 429? 836 plus 429. Go ahead and pause the lecture. Okay, ready for the answer? The correct answer is 1,265. Now, let's talk about some of the steps that people might typically go through as they solve this problem. And notice I said typically. I'm sure some of you in the audience have taken Professor Benjamin's great course called Secrets of Mental Math. And if so, you probably have all kinds of tricks and strategies that let you solve that problem super fast. But let me talk about the way the rest of us would probably solve it. The standard method would start with the ones column. So what were the numbers in the ones column? Well, I stored the numbers away temporarily when I read the problem, and now I have to retrieve them. They were 836 and 429. So the ones column contains a 6 and a 9. And if I add those together, I get 15. So now I need to hold on to that 5 and carry the 1 over to the second column. But what was the second column? Well, once again, I retrieved the numbers, 836 and 429, that I had stored away temporarily. So the second column has a 3 and a 2. But I also have to remember that I carried a 1, so 1 plus 3 plus 2 is 6, and the answer in the tens column is 6. Now I might make sure that I can still remember what the answer for the ones column was. Do you remember? It was 5. And the answer for the tens column is 6. So the last two columns are 65. So now I have to temporarily store 65. Hold that in mind. Finally, the hundreds column. What were those numbers again? Let's see, 836 and 429. So the hundreds column is 8 and 4. And adding those together, I get 12. Then I have to retrieve the answers for the tens and the ones column that I had just stored away. Remember, they were 65. So the whole answer. 1,265. Now, notice throughout that problem, I was constantly storing information away temporarily, retrieving it later to do some more processing on it, storing it away again, retrieving it again to do something else, and so on. That's working memory. Temporarily storing information away and then retrieving it and manipulating it in the service of your goals a little while later. 
You're not storing it away in long-term memory for retrieval tomorrow or next week. Working memory is a kind of temporary or short-term memory. In fact, psychologists often use the terms short-term memory and working memory interchangeably to refer to the same cognitive process. But working memory has become the preferred term because it conveys the idea that the system is actively engaged in working with information. It's not just a passive storage system. For example, when I was solving the mental addition problem, I had to remember to carry a one and then later add that one to the second column. I had to work with the information I was temporarily storing away. And that's why the term working memory has come to be preferred over the term short-term memory. But again, they're the same thing. Okay, so working memory is temporary and it's also actively used for processing information. Another important characteristic is that it has a much more limited capacity than long-term memory. Think about how much information you have stored away in your long-term memory. You know hundreds of thousands of English words. And if you're multilingual, you may know hundreds of thousands of words in some other languages. And it's also hard to put a number on the number of facts you know about the world. You know that grass is green. You know that five times two is 10. You know that you have to put stamps on envelopes before you mail them and on and on. And of course, you remember thousands upon thousands of personal episodes from your own life. You remember where you grew up. You remember attending various schools. You remember friends, families, and pets. The point is that the capacity of your long-term memory is virtually unlimited. Obviously, our brains are finite, and so there must be some upper limit on how much information we can store in long-term memory, but nobody seems to have reached it in our limited lifespans. In contrast, the capacity of working memory is severely limited. For example, suppose I asked you to close your eyes and add 625,488,561 and 37,290,417 in your head. Now, it's pretty unlikely you'd be able to remember the numbers themselves, much less actually add them together. And that's not because you can't add big numbers. I mean, if I gave you a piece of paper and a pencil and I invited you to write the numbers down and do the addition on paper, you'd probably find it pretty easy. The problem is the capacity of your working memory is limited. You can only store so much information at a time. Okay, now that we have a handle on what we mean by working memory, let's turn to its role in cognition. And that role is huge. In fact, working memory plays a crucial role in virtually any cognitive task you can think of. When you're holding a conversation with someone, you need to temporarily store what they're saying, process that information, and retrieve it later on in the conversation. That requires working memory. When you're watching a movie, or a play, or a TV show, you need to keep track of what's going on and relate the new information to what you've already seen. That requires working memory. When you're cooking dinner, or doing your taxes, or playing an instrument, or reading, or writing, or driving, or listening to a great course for that matter, you're using your working memory. 
In fact, let me challenge you to try to come up with a cognitive task that requires real thought, but that doesn't involve working memory. I think it would be very hard to do. You get the point. Anytime you're thinking, you're using your working memory. Working memory is absolutely central to thought. And consistent with that point, people with greater working memory capacity tend to perform better on a wide range of cognitive tasks. They perform better on tests of reading comprehension. They perform better on tests of reasoning. They get better grades and higher standardized test scores. In fact, working memory capacity is one of the best predictors of intelligence, at least as measured by IQ tests. Now, IQ tests are controversial and for some good reasons, and getting into that controversy would take us pretty far afield. But regardless of those controversies, the problems on IQ tests are selected precisely because they have been shown to predict performance on a bunch of other cognitive tasks. So the fact that working memory capacity predicts IQ is further evidence that working memory is important to cognition in general. Now, clearly working memory is important, but so are long-term explicit and implicit memory. So what's the relationship between working and long-term memory? Well, by this point in the course, I hope you're beginning to realize just how many different memory systems human beings use. For example, we've seen that explicit memory is fundamentally different than implicit memory, and it depends on different neural substrates. And even within explicit memory, we distinguished between semantic memory for facts and our episodic memory for personal events that are tied to a specific time and place. So it will probably come as no surprise that working memory is itself a distinct memory system. In fact, we've already discussed some of the evidence for that claim when we talked about the amnesic patient Henry Malayason. Recall, Henry's explicit long-term memory was profoundly impaired. He didn't remember the doctors and nurses who took care of him every day, and he would sometimes introduce himself like he'd never met them before. He didn't remember where he lived or what he'd done that morning or the previous day. He didn't even always remember his parents' death. But despite these profound impairments in long-term memory, his working memory was normal. He could keep track of the flow of a conversation. He could remember a sequence of about six digits and report them back to you after a brief delay, which is within the normal range. This is an example of what's sometimes called a single dissociation. So the damage to one part of the brain causes a deficit in one process, but not another. In this case, damage to the hippocampus and other medial temporal lobe structures leads to impairments in long-term memory, but not working memory. Now, you might think that evidence like that proves that long-term memory and working memory depend on different underlying systems. But there's actually a potential alternative explanation. Suppose the long-term memory tasks are just harder than the working memory tasks. Then you might perform worse on the long-term memory tasks even if they depend on exactly the same neural systems as the working memory tasks. For example, suppose I ask you to repeat back the following sequence of 15 letters in the same order I say them. Ready? 
K P F T B L R Q D N A Y U X M. Okay, go ahead, repeat those back. Yeah, right. Obviously, that list was far too long to try to store in your working memory, and so performance is probably going to be very bad. Conversely, if I make the task easier and just ask you to repeat back two letters, say J and Z, in that order, then you won't have any problems performing the task. So here's a situation where performance is really bad on one task, but really good on another. That's a single dissociation. But in this case, the single dissociation is presumably due to the fact that remembering 15 letters is a heck of a lot harder than remembering two letters. Not because the two tasks depend on different neural systems. Well, the same argument could potentially apply to the single dissociation we discussed in amnesia. Yes, amnesic patients do worse on long-term memory tasks than they do on working memory tasks. But it's possible that the long-term memory tasks are just harder than the working memory tasks. So how can we rule out that alternative explanation? Well, suppose we found another brain-damaged patient who exhibited the opposite dissociation. That is, a patient whose long-term memory was normal, but whose working memory was dramatically impaired. It turns out there are such patients. And we'll refer to one such patient by his initials KF in order to protect his anonymity. KF had a pretty severe motorcycle accident that led to brain damage. But the damage was not in the medial temporal lobes. And sure enough, his long-term memory was fine. He remembered the names of people he met. He remembered where he lived and all his friends and family. He remembered what he did last night and last summer. But his working memory was dramatically impaired. In particular, whereas most people can remember six or seven digits after a brief delay, KF could only remember about two. So KF's problems were kind of like the opposite of Henry Malayasin's. Henry had problems with long-term memory, but not working memory. In contrast, KF had problems with working memory, but not long-term memory. That's what's called a double dissociation. Two patients who exhibit single dissociations, but in opposite directions. One patient is impaired on task A, but not task B, while the other patient is impaired on task B, but not task A. The great thing about double dissociations is that you can't explain them away based on difference in task difficulty. For example, Suppose working memory and long-term memory actually depend on exactly the same neural system. And the only reason that Henry Malayasin is more impaired on long-term than working memory tasks is because the long-term memory tasks are harder. Well, in that case, you should never see a patient like KF who exhibits the opposite dissociation and is selectively impaired on the tasks that are assumed to be easier. The only way to explain both dissociations is if working memory and long-term memory depend on different underlying systems. Okay, well, so far we've discussed what working memory is, the central role that it plays in virtually all cognitive tasks, and the fact that it depends on different brain systems than long-term memory does. Now let's move on and talk about the mechanisms underlying working memory. 
And specifically, I want to talk about a theory of working memory that was proposed originally by Alan Badley and Graham Hitch, who were at the University of Stirling in Scotland at the time. It has since become one of the most influential theories in all of cognitive psychology, probably because it's relatively simple and yet it manages to explain a wide variety of empirical phenomena. One of the key assumptions of this theory is that working memory consists of multiple separable components. So just like working memory should be distinguished from long-term memory, and just like explicit memory should be distinguished from implicit memory, Badley and Hitch argued that working memory itself should be subdivided into separate functional components. Originally, they proposed three components, a phonological loop, a visuospatial sketch pad, and a central executive. But in 2000, Badley argued for the addition of an episodic buffer component. Let's start with the phonological loop component. And then in our next lecture, we'll discuss the other components of working memory, as well as some of the neural mechanisms that have been discovered. Now, the phonological loop is the component of working memory that is responsible for the temporary storage and rehearsal of linguistic information. For example, suppose I ask you to remember a few random words like ball, truck, mirror, and star. Then a few seconds later, I ask you to repeat those words back to me. You would be using your phonological loop to hang on to that information temporarily. Now, you could imagine different ways of storing those words. You could store images of what the words look like based on the shapes of the component letters. You could also imagine storing representations of the words' meanings. But a key assumption of the phonological loop is that you store the words in a sound-based format. Do you remember what phonemes are from our lecture on language acquisition? Phonemes are the atomic units of distinctive speech sounds in a language. For example, the k, a, t, and sounds in the word cat. The assumption is that when we're storing language in working memory, we're storing phonemes or language sounds. That's why it's called the phonological loop. So what's the evidence for that claim? Well, let's do a little demo. What I'd like you to do is to pause the lecture and get yourself a piece of paper and a pencil. And once you've got those, you can start the lecture back up. Go ahead. Okay, ready? I'm gonna give you a list of letters. And right after I give you the list, I want you to write them down in the order I said them, okay? Don't write them down as I'm saying them. Wait until I'm done. Got it? Here we go. B, K, X, Y, R, N, Q, L. Okay, go ahead and write those down. Okay, now I will let you count up the number that you got right. So the correct order was B, K, X, Y, R, N, Q, L. So how many did you get out of eight? All right, now we're gonna do a second list of letters. Again, don't write anything down until I ask you to. Ready? Here we go. B, C, P, T, V, E, D, G. Okay, now write those down in order.
Okay, I'll let you score yourself again. The correct order was B, C, P, T, V, E, D, G. So how'd you do? I'm betting that most of you got more letters right in the first list than the second. So why is that? They're both just lists of eight meaningless letters, right? What's the difference? Well, the big thing was that the letters in the second list all sounded similar, while those in the first list didn't. B, C, P, T, V, E, D, and G all rhyme. They all have the E sound in them. But the letters in the first list all sounded different. B, K, X, Y, R, N, Q, and L. This phenomenon is sometimes called the phonological similarity effect. When we have to temporarily store away words that are phonologically similar, in other words, that sound alike, we typically do worse than if we're trying to store words that sound different. But what's really interesting is that we only have trouble with items that sound alike, not with items that look alike or items that have similar meanings. For example, consider the word bow, and in this case I mean B-O-U-G-H, as in the bow of a tree, not bending over at the waist. The spelling of the word bow is very similar to cough, to dough, and to through. All those words end in O-U-G-H, and they only differ in the first letter or two. So if you print them out and look at them, those words look very similar, but they sound completely different. And people don't have any trouble storing words like this in working memory. So visual similarity doesn't cause the same problems that phonological similarity causes. Likewise, semantic similarity also doesn't cause problems. That is, people have no problem storing words that have similar meanings in working memory. So if I gave you the list huge, long, tall, big, and wide, you probably wouldn't have any problem holding on to those words. In fact, the fact that the words are semantically related might actually make it easier to remember them. The bottom line is that phonological similarity impairs working memory, but visual and semantic similarity don't. And that suggests that when we store verbal information in working memory, we're storing the sound of the information, not what it looks like, and not what it means. And that's exactly what the phonological loop model assumes. The other key assumption of the phonological loop model corresponds to the loop in the model. The model assumes that people have access to an articulatory loop that they can use to rehearse the sound-based representations stored in working memory. So, think of a cassette tape. Do you remember those? But this is a really, really short cassette tape that can only record about two seconds worth of sounds. So whatever sounds you can fit on that very short tape, you can then rewind and play back. That's what the articulatory loop is like. Whatever language sounds you can say in about two seconds, you can rehearse and refresh using this loop. And the reason it's called an articulatory loop is because the assumption is that you articulate the information in working memory. That is, you say it to yourself. Not necessarily out loud. You might do it sub-vocally. 
But the assumption is that you are using some of the same mechanisms that you use when you speak. You're just speaking to yourself. And doing that reactivates and refreshes the sound-based representations that are in working memory so that you can hang on to them a little bit longer. The model also assumes that if you're trying to store language-based information in working memory, but that information isn't already in a sound-based format, then you'll use the articulatory loop to say it to yourself and convert it into a sound-based format. For example, suppose I ask you to remember a few words in your working memory, but instead of saying them out loud, I just let you read them on a piece of paper or on a computer screen. So the words are presented in a visual format, not in a phonological format. Well, the model assumes that you will use your articulatory loop to say the words to yourself and convert them into a phonological format. And that's the format that they're stored in. So even though the words were presented visually, they're stored phonologically. Now, these assumptions about the articulatory loop make a number of testable predictions. For example, I should see a phonological similarity effect even if I ask you to remember words that you see but don't hear. After all, you're converting them to a sound-based format, and so items that sound similar should still interfere with each other, even if you read them initially. Sure enough, that's true. If I ask you to try to remember B, T, V, G, Z, C, E, that's going to be hard whether you hear those letters or just read those letters. Letters that sound alike are hard to remember regardless. The model also predicts that preventing people from using their articulatory loop should impair their working memory performance. That's because they need the articulatory loop in order to rehearse. So without it, items in working memory will not get refreshed, and working memory performance will decline. But how do you prevent people from using their articulatory loop to rehearse information in working memory? Well, one standard approach is to make people repeatedly say some irrelevant words out loud while they're performing the task. For example, you could ask people to say the, 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 or maybe one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, over and over again while they're trying to add information to working memory and then maintain it. This procedure is sometimes called articulatory suppression because you're trying to suppress people's ability to articulate information to themselves. That is, you're preventing them from rehearsing the information in working memory. The idea is that if people have to speak out loud, then they can't simultaneously say the memory items to themselves in their head. And, as predicted, articulatory suppression does indeed impair working memory performance. But, what do you think would happen to the phonological similarity effect under these conditions? Do you think people would still find it harder to remember words that sound alike compared to words that don't, if they're talking out loud and can't rehearse the items to themselves? Well, in this case, the phonological loop model makes a fairly subtle and specific prediction that might seem surprising. 
It predicts that the effect should disappear under articulatory suppression conditions, but only if people are seeing the words rather than hearing the words. Remember, the model assumes that you use the articulatory loop to say visually presented items to yourself and then convert them into a phonological format. But if you use articulatory suppression and thereby prevent people from articulating the visually presented items, then the items shouldn't get converted into a phonological format. And if they're not in a phonological format, then it shouldn't make any difference whether the items sound alike or not. And it doesn't. The phonological similarity effect disappears when people are forced to repeatedly say V, 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 or one, two, three out loud. At least it does for visually presented items. But what if you hear the items you're trying to remember? Well, in that case, you still continue to see a phonological similarity effect, even under conditions of articulatory suppression. And that's exactly what the phonological loop model predicts. If you hear the items, they're already in a phonological format. You therefore don't need the articulatory loop in order to convert them, because no conversion is necessary. And since they're already in a sound-based format, you would expect that items that sound alike would be harder to remember than items that don't. And that's exactly what scientists have found. The bottom line is that this relatively simple phonological loop model not only predicts that similar sounding items will be harder to remember and that making people talk out loud will impair their memory, it also correctly predicts that phonological similarity effects will disappear when people talk out loud, but only if items are presented visually. That's a lot of explanatory power from a simple, plausible theory. But there's more. Consider the assumption that the articulatory rehearsal loop can only hold about two seconds of speech. That also makes a number of testable predictions. For example, it predicts that people should be able to remember more short words than long words. And the reason is simple. You can say more short words in a two-second window than you can long words. And that means you can rehearse more short words than long words. And every rehearsal refreshes the item in working memory. For example, suppose I ask you to remember the words some, wit, and harm. You can easily say those three words within a two-second window, and so you should be able to rehearse them using your articulatory loop and keep them active in working memory. But if I ask you to remember some longer multisyllabic words like opportunity, individual, and university, then you won't be able to rehearse as many of them, and so your performance will drop. And sure enough, it does people can remember significantly more short one-syllable words than long multi-syllable words. But it's not actually about the number of syllables. It's about how long it takes you to say the word. For example, consider the word bishop and the word harpoon. Both those words have two syllables, but most people say the word bishop faster than they say the word harpoon. And it turns out that people can remember more words like bishop 
than words like harpoon, even if all the words have the same number of syllables. The finding even extends to how fast people speak. If you measure a person's speed of speech, that is how many words they typically produce per second, you'll find that it's a very good predictor of their working memory capacity. For example, people in the Northeast tend to speak faster than people with a Southern drawl. They also tend to have a larger working memory capacity. And that makes perfect sense according to the phonological loop model. If you speak faster, then you can rehearse more words during the loop's two-second time window. And more rehearsals means better performance. It also suggests that working memory capacity might not be innate, but can be influenced and potentially even improved by experience. In fact, we're going to devote an entire lecture to that fascinating topic, so be on the lookout. Okay, let's sum up. In this lecture, we made three major points. First, working memory is central to thought. Virtually any complex cognitive task will require working memory. And working memory capacity is one of the best predictors of cognitive ability across tasks. Second, working memory is fundamentally different from long-term memory. It depends on different neural substrates, as double dissociations between different brain-damaged patients conclusively demonstrate. Third, a simple phonological loop model can explain many phenomena related to working memory for language-based information, including effects of phonological similarity, articulatory suppression, word length, and speed of speech. Next time, we'll continue our discussion of working memory by discussing the other components of Badley's famous model. And we'll also address an important question that has received a lot of attention. Where and how is working memory implemented in the brain? See you then.